The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. The weekend of strikes also took place alongside a deal actually being struck on the border and the text has been released. The headline on the terminal now Senators reach deal on Ukraine aid, U.S. border, but hurdles remain, and that's for sure. You've got the Speaker of the House still calling this DOA in the House of Representatives. Even uh, conservatives and progressives in the Senate are making us wonder if this can pass the chamber uh, in which it was born. This is, of course, the deal that we have been talking about here for weeks, if not months. The final price tag on this. We finally have the text here. After talking about this for so long, $118 billion, that is more than first estimated and and more than was requested by the White House in its supplemental ask. It cuts the number of migrants eligible for asylum. It changes the way claims are processed. And everyone's finding something to hate here. That's where we start our conversation with Maya McGinnis. Always fascinating to talk to Maya with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, where she is president. Uh, It's interesting here, Maya, to to learn that we can, in fact, reach compromise on something, whether it gets passed is another matter. But is any of this paid for? Well, we are right now in in a moment of lots of emergency or supplemental spending, which basically means Mm -hmm. nobody bothers to pay for it. And there's a good argument that when you're talking about emergencies, it's not something that needs to be offset because it's unexpected. It's a one-time thing. You jump in, you you find the money later, you deal with that later. Uh, But obviously, the border is an emergency in terms of how big of a problem it is, but it is not something we haven't known about. So there is a lot of emergency spending right now on the agenda, border, Ukraine, Israel, uh, all sorts of different things that they are contemplating. None of these things would be offset. They would add to the national debt. And I would say that at a time when the debt is as bad as it is, even legitimate emergencies, we should try to offset those costs over a reasonable amount of time because debt is debt. And we really we've got to deal with the emergencies that are piling up in the in the world right now. But we also have to deal with the emergency of the national debt. And you do that by paying for things. Because it is its own emergency. Maya McGinnis, debt is debt. You're right about that. Now I see Speaker Johnson, who doesn't like this bill, and says it won't even get a vote. Steve Scalise said that. Uh, He is planning a vote this week, Maya, on a $17 billion standalone Israeli aid package. Remembering he did this at one point, and there were offsets that were coming out of enhanced funding for the IRS. It appears there are none here. The Freedom Caucus is unhappy about it. So is is that little honeymoon over? Now the Speaker of the House is putting bills on the floor that aren't paid for? Well, this was a complicated one. So when they came out and said they were going to pay for the Israeli funding, that was really a great sign of understanding there are very important things we have to do. Important things are worth paying for. There's an important caveat on this one, though, which is repealing the money for the IRS doesn't actually Mm -hmm. save money. 
it makes the deficit larger because all of the experts who have evaluated this say that a dollar additional dollar for the IRS actually generates more than that in terms of closing the tax gap or the amount of taxes that are owed by uh, corporations, small businesses, the well-off that aren't paid. This is probably the only program that you will ever hear me say actually could pay for itself. So when you repeal IRS funding, that would be scored as making the deficit worse. So I loved the principle of let's pay for it. The one policy they picked to do so, I don't think really was the right one. But your question is more about politically, what does this mean? I think we're in a yeah. different situation with the speaker. I think he has more leeway. I think that the members of his conference may disagree on specifics, but they understand how difficult this is, and they don't want to go through another exercise of kicking out the speaker. So I think he's communicating with them and trying to figure out what to do. But this is really about House versus Senate and showing who's going to have mm -hmm. the upper hand and creating what the agenda is for what emergency supplementals move forward and what the format of those bills are. We're going to have a lot more uh, on the contents of this border deal and break it down coming up with our panel a little bit later on this hour. But when I look around at what's happening here, Maya, and I'm, you're looking at the same calendar I am, there's going to be discord, apparently uh, a lot of uh, hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth over this. But we have we have less than a month to figure out how to keep the government from shutting down in March. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are a couple of other issues that need to be handled as well, whether it's FAA or FISA. We've got this tax deal that was passed last week that may not see the light of day. I guess I'm wondering if if you worry that this border debate with Ukraine and Israel attached bogs us down on a level where we can't get anything else done. Are we going to shut down in less than a month? Well, listen, I worry about everything. Uh, there's lots to worry about, but um, I think there's actually capacity to deal with emergency supplementals, the border, tax deals, and funding of government if we work efficiently on these things. The problem is mm -hmm. that there is a very small group of people who are really rolling up their sleeves and working on each of these issues, and then a lot of members in the House and the Senate kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what happens. So we can work in this very differently. The process is not conducive to getting things done. But to go to your first point, which is so important, we are one third of the way through the fiscal year. We have not <laughs> passed a budget. We have not funded the government. And from everything I can see, we are doing very little to move those appropriations bills forward. I was really impressed when, when the Republicans were saying, we don't want another omnibus. That's where you hide all sorts of unpaid for yeah, legislation. Sure. They wanted to go through the actual act of budgeting. And I think calling for that's very important. But I just haven't seen any signs that as we are only four weeks away from that deadline, there's any progress being made on coming up those appropriations bills and importantly, working out the differences between the House and the Senate. Because the conversations I'm having right now Tensions between those bodies are also running very high. Which makes me wonder, I have to ask you, if, uh, at some point here, Maya, is it more likely that Joe Biden's State of the Union will be postponed because of a shutdown or canceled? Or is it more likely that he'll give that speech, but Mike Johnson will not be sitting behind him? Oh, boy, that's a good one. Well, first off, I each of the past could have been shutdown moments. I didn't think we were going to shut down. Um, and I was pretty confident. I'm not quite as confident this time. I don't think we're going to shut down. I don't think it's in anybody's interest. And it's a very important political year where I think people are understanding that. But there's a risk this time that there wasn't last time, because I don't think there'll be further continuing resolutions. 
And there is a lot of resistance to one big funding or a couple big funding bills that kind of paper over the details. Um, mm -hmm. But I think we will see the State of the Union. I think that the speaker will be there. I think it will be a political <laughs> and contentious State of the Union, but I think it will yes, go indeed. ahead as planned on the date. And that, I think, we'll just go ahead and call progress if that happens. Maya McGinnis, I have to ask you uh, about a big story here. I, that's uh, You better believe it. I want to throw a big log on the fire while I have you in a couple of minutes that we have less than the commentary that I saw you writing at the Post and Courier. Social Security is in trouble is the headline. Most candidates won't admit it. Uh, this is for sure, Maya. We've been talking about this a lot in our campaign coverage. In fact, an interview that I had with Nikki Haley ended up being part of a Trump ad because she dared to answer a question about raising the age for eligibility for Social Security. Your point in this column is well taken. Considering the fact that no one will touch this, it's still in Al Gore's lockbox somewhere. Will we be able to have this conversation after the presidential campaign? Yeah, that's what I'm really worried about. And I've been actually quite impressed with all of the coverage that, that you all are putting out there, because this is this issue that is so political and gets politicized and demagogued and, and people just are outright not telling the truth. It's very difficult for in a campaign cycle for the policies to get coverage. And uh, I have to say that I have thought Nikki, Nikki Haley has talked about this issue. She's talked about some of the things that she would do that would actually close the solvency gap. And while you've had a lot of other candidates, including both President Trump and President Biden, talking about what they won't do, the bottom line is Social Security and Medicare have trust funds that are going to become insolvent. Nobody likes it. Everybody who paid into the program does not appreciate the fact that these are structurally imbalanced. But there are lots of reasons for why. And the end, the end result is we are going to have to make some changes. There are ways we can do this that will protect people who depend on the program, that make a lot yeah. of changes for that start in the longer run so people have time to plan, well, younger people, not current retirees. But the more they demagogue, the candidates who do demagogue, the more they do, exactly. the more difficult it's going to be to fix this program. After Come back and talk to this when we can talk about solutions. Maya McGinnis, this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We also have to talk about something the U.K. has been involved in with the U.S. in recent weeks, which is strikes in the Middle East. We've, of course, seen a multitude of them over the weekend. And joining us now is General David Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies and, of course, a former U.S. Air Force a retired lieutenant general. So, Lieutenant General, thank you so much 
for joining us. If if you could just react to uh, uh, what we have seen develop over the weekend, the actions the U.S. has taken thus far, how escalatory in nature were they to you? Well, first, uh, Joe and Kaylee, thanks for having me uh, uh, to join into this very important discussion. The bottom line up front is that the airstrikes this past Friday against the Iranian militia groups were an appropriate response. And quite frankly, it's good to hear that they're the first part of a series of operations that will continue to degrade Iranian militias that are attacking U.S. forces. This is not a one and done kind of attack. Um, Iranian proxies in the area are numerous and robust. Uh, and uh, frankly, um, as I mentioned, um, it's about time, it's well past time that the United States signify uh, the importance of responding to the kinds of aggression that its forces are facing in the region. Yeah. I want to hear about uh, some of the choices that the Pentagon made here. General, knowing that you flew the F-15, we saw B-1s fly around the world from bases here in the U.S. to take part in that initial strike on Friday. Saw the Navy get involved with F-18s off the USS Eisenhower over the course of the weekend. Some cruise missiles uh, have been used here. What do you make about the selections of hardware? How effective was it? Well, first, uh, you know, um, the military commands in the region are still assessing Uh, impact. But if you look at the use of the B-1, which many people are wondering, well, why why did he do that Um, and launch Mm -hmm. it from the United States? um, I'd tell you that first, it induced a degree of surprise um, with respect to adversaries uh, in the region. Um, Second, it's an aircraft that has a very large precision payload. In other words, it can drop many weapons from one platform and stay airborne for long periods of time. And finally, it also signaled that the United States can project power um, without local basing. Our U.S.-based bombers can reach anywhere in the world in a matter of hours. It doesn't take weeks or months to do so. So, um, by the way, um, as you mentioned over the weekend, but even on that strike on Friday, the B-1s were not the only aircraft that were used. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. Air, for, Air Force aircraft are deployed to the Middle East, and they were also part of the attacks um, that you saw on Friday. Well, Lieutenant General, you, you mentioned the projection of power on the part of the U.S. How much power is projected if the signal being sent is that the U.S. is reluctant to directly strike Iran in its own territory? Is the U.S. giving too much away here in terms of what it is not willing to do, what power it will not utilize? Kaylee, that's a wonderful question. Let me speak to a minute, uh, to uh, or for a moment about deterrence, and let me remind your audience that the way one deters a wider war is not by saying that you don't want a wider war or that we won't strike inside Iran, but by making sure Iran understands that if they and their proxies continue attacks on U.S. personnel, then they can expect disastrous consequences. In other words, deterrence is achieved by instilling in the minds of the Iranian leadership sufficient uncertainty of achieving their objectives so that they decide not to continue their attacks due to the potential consequences. So I'm afraid that attacks on U.S. forces in the region won't stop until Iran understands that their critical interests are at stake. So 
the administration has to stop telling our enemies what the U.S. is not going to do, is that only will encourage them to continue their attacks. So um, I, I got to tell you, it's very frustrating. And frankly, the kind of attacks you saw on Friday and follow on the weekend are ones that should have been conducted when attacks against U.S. forces commenced back last year. That would have increased the probability of deterring the four months of attacks on U.S. forces since then. Well, are you taking them at their word here? We were speaking with Michael Knights a couple of days ago, General. He said we are out of rungs on the escalation ladder. If this doesn't uh, work no, in, I, say, a, a couple of weeks and we're still playing with this, is a, is a strike against Iran out of the question? Well, no, it shouldn't be out of the question. And quite frankly, as I just said, um, you, we, we shouldn't be telling or telegraphing what we may or may not be doing. What I'd tell you is that actions directly against Iran will be fundamental to halt their continued aggression and the aggression by their clients. Now, that action can take many forms. It can be lethal, non-lethal, economic, diplomatic, deterrent, or combination of all of these. And while I don't want to get into specifics in terms of what I would target, um, <laughs> because all that does is, is, is aid the Iranians, I believe that it would be wise uh, to initiate full up sanctions on Iran against all forms of their economic income, particularly their oil exports. And then if necessary, direct attacks against the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps leadership, their key essential systems, which allow them to function, their infrastructure, their personnel, and their deployed forces. Um, and, and again, without getting into specifics, those are some general areas um, that um, Iran needs to be put on notice, um, are liable to be struck, uh, and that may have the effect of deterring the Iranians. But we also have to be ready to back up um, uh, these mm -hmm. statements. So we're not, I, well, I mean, Michael's a friend of mine, but I have to tell you, no, we're not anywhere close to getting to the last rung in the escalation ladder. Well, of course, when we're thinking about rungs and ladders here, you also there is the ladder in terms of how financing from Iran goes to these different proxy groups. As we talk here about deterring Iran, are we assuming that the connection between Iran and its proxies are strong enough that that, that directly translates? Or is there a certain degree of control that Tehran, even if it decided it wanted to, cannot exercise over some of these groups? And uh, again, another great question, um, you know, the. The short answer is complex, but that's why I said that with respect to deterrence, um, you know, we have to keep the issue of actions directly against the government of Iran on the table. Um, only when they understand that their critical interests are threatened um, will they pull back the throttles on the aggression uh, that they may in fact be orchestrating. Uh, yes, to a degree, there is some uh, independence of these proxy groups, but these proxy groups rely 100% on Iran for their military capabilities. Mm.
All right, Lieutenant General, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. That was Lieutenant General David Deptula, who is now Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. We really appreciate your time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Welcome back indeed to Balance of Power on both Bloomberg Television and Radio. Here in Washington, we've talked at length, Joe, about the politics around the border deal, the text of which was just released yesterday. Mm -hmm. Politics really defines the name of the game right now, less so the actual policy. You were running Mm -hmm. through it just a moment ago, the changes to asylum and parole authorities, the sheer number that would be allowed in before President Biden would have to use the authority to shut things down. There is real policy substance here. It's just Mm -hmm. a question of how much that actually matters. I'm just wondering how many people are getting to the point of reading it because minds seem to be made up last week based on leaks and Facebook reports, social media, Trump tweets, because these were considered out of reach for Republicans Mm -hmm. until very recent history, Kaylee, and it looks like they might let it go. Well, dead on arrival in the House is what we're hearing from House leadership. So maybe you just don't even catch it in the first place. You just don't touch it at all less so letting go. But the fact of the matter remains, the policy we're talking about is about what happens when people arrive here, when Mm -hmm. they're actually at the border, whether they're let in, whether they're granted asylum, what happens in the United States. There's also the really important question about why the people are arriving here in the first place, where they're coming from. And so for more on this conversation, we want to bring in now Maria Fernanda Bosmoski. She's deputy director of the Adrian Ash Latin America Center at the Atlantic Council. Maria, thank you so much for being with us. As we consider what is primarily a border measure, not necessarily immigration policy changes as a whole here, are these policy initiatives doing enough to address the actual root cause of why we have a border issue in the first place. Thank you so much for having me. And I think that that's a great question to kick off the conversation. Very few things are being done from a policy perspective to address what is pushing thousands of people to the US-Mexico border every single day. I think that you'll hear in the halls of Washington, DC that you know there's a crisis at the border. And I don't disagree with that. There's certainly a security, humanitarian, economic crisis, um, but it doesn't start at the U.S. border. It starts 3,000 miles south. Uh, We're seeing a huge uh, security crisis in Latin America. Uh, Weeks ago, we saw in Ecuador on live TV um, just Mm -hmm. anchors being uh, held at gunpoint. And we're seeing that across Latin America, the whole security uh, situation is deteriorating in in the countries. Um, And that is one of the top three reasons that uh, migrants cite as as the reasons that are pushing them out of their countries. Well, among the provisions uh, in this deal uh, includes 
something that Republicans have been asking for for some time, new expedited removal authority for migrants who do not qualify for asylum. And that definition of asylum, as we've been discussing, is being tightened. We heard from mm -hmm. one of the negotiators, Kirsten Cinema, that they will be sent back home. What happens when they get there? One of the things that this bill, um, as I was looking through it, that I, I think is worth pointing out in relation to your question, Joe, is that there's at least $4 billion um, that would be allocated to the Department of State uh, that would be roughly divided into 50% of that would be to help uh, build capacity in the countries to accept and reintegrate uh, individuals that have been removed from the United States. I think that that is essential. I think that um, the countries in Latin America really need that kind of support. Uh, and then the other half of those $4 billion, uh, $400 million, sorry, is, is uh, going to be if this bill were to pass, um, allocated to address some of those root causes that are pushing um, mm -hmm. Latin Americans, lots of Central Americans to come to the U.S. border. Yeah, if it were to pass is a good point to make, as it looks right now that this bill will not, in fact, be passing. But when it comes to asylum specifically, something else you hear from uh, specifically Republicans who have pushed back against having too expansive uh, asylum allowances here in the U.S. is that these migrants should be applying for asylum in the other countries through which they're passing. Just with your knowledge of Latin America, how hard, how difficult is it to attain real asylum in, in these other countries that are not the United States? I think, unfortunately, the infrastructure uh, throughout Latin America for seeking asylum is not uh, very robust. For example, in Costa Rica, um, after 2018, when there were huge crises and manifestations in Nicaragua, the system was very quickly overwhelmed. Uh, and Costa Rica is arguably one of the most uh, well-equipped countries in, in the region to support uh, asylees and, and applications. The other thing to note is that um, these migrants, many times when you talk to them, you realize that leaving their countries is their last resort. They don't want to leave their homes, but they're being threatened. They're being extorted. They don't have economic opportunities. And so going back to the uh, previous question, I think that this bill, again, if it were to pass, uh, would maybe potentially be a game changer if it could help um, address some of those key factors that are pushing people out um, and then creating this situation at the border. Not a mention of dreamers here, uh, or for that matter, any undocumented immigrants already living in the country, should there be? Well, I think that this is a, a comprehensive um, effort to start to address a system that is is broken um, that you can you can say that from I think any any point uh, in the this country um, and I think that this is kind of low-hanging fruit um, it's we can't deny this is a political year of course um, it's also um, sorry elections are happening in Mexico this year too um, so I think that that's an interesting dynamic that is shaping some of the substance that is in this in this bill. And finally, as we talk about the idea that this bill may not pass, what a lot of Republicans are calling for instead is for the president to just use authority that they argue he still has or he already has without Congress granting it to just shut down the border entirely. If the U.S. were to do that, Maria, what would that realistically look like? What happens on the other side of the border? 
well, you would need Mexico's cooperation. Um, and President Lopez Obrador in Mexico has in the past uh, been willing to work, especially with former President Trump, um, on those uh, on receiving individuals who have been removed. It's an election year. Um, his uh, main the the candidate for the opposing party, Xochitl Galvez, is in D.C. today, um, and politics in the U.S.-Mexico sorry, immigration in the U.S.-Mexico relationship um, is is like a, it's a tricky um, thing. And, and I, I don't mm -hmm. know how the president might uh, receive this request. Mm -hmm. Maria, thank you for joining us. It's great analysis in the hours following the release of this text. We appreciate your insights here from your perch at the Atlantic Council. Maria, Fernanda, Bosmoski, Kaylee, there's going to be a lot more time to decipher this, but we're getting some interesting reactions here today already. Yeah, absolutely. Although, to her point, we're talking about what happens if the bill passes. Right. That is still a massive if, is the reality here in Washington today. Looks like we could get a vote Wednesday. We'll yeah. find out together here on Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.